Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, there are many amazing engineering feats accomplished by humans. Think of the world's tallest building, for example, the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. It's a building that reaches over 800 meters into the air. Think also of something like the Aswan Dam in Egypt, producing 2.1 gigawatts of power. The dam supplies a huge amount of entire country of Egypt's electricity. Another engineering feat we see quite often are bridges. Some of the bridges in the world are really incredible. There's Canada's very own Confederation Bridge, the 13-kilometer bridge connecting PEI and New Brunswick. Uh, there's the highest bridge, the Milot Viaduct in France, standing at over 1,100 feet tall. And for the longest length, there's the Excuse the pronunciation, Dangyang Kunshan Grand Bridge in China, a railway bridge that stretches a whopping 160 kilometers. Quite, quite the bridge. So we find bridges in so many places. Humans have been able to bridge the gap between nearly every terrain. However, there is one gap that humans simply cannot bridge across. And that's the chasm that stands between us and God by nature. Of course, by that I don't mean some kind of physical canyon or gorge. Rather, there is a spiritual separation between God and sinful humans. And that chasm has been created by human sin, by our sin. And that separation is so wide, so long, and so deep that humans simply cannot bridge that gap. It's impossible for us to do it. The only way the chasm between God and us is removed is if the problem of sin is dealt with. And that's something we cannot do. It's something only God can do. And we will look at how he does it in our sermon this afternoon. So that brings us to the sermon theme. Sin has created a chasm between us and God that can only be removed by a perfect Savior. We have three points. First, we'll look at the chasm between us and God. Second, the perfect Savior. And finally, the gospel that reveals this to us. So there is that deep gap between sinful humans and holy God. The chasm between us and God because of sin is described in places like Isaiah 59, verse 2. There, the Lord says to Israel, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Now, this is how the Lord describes the situation between himself and a rebellious Israel in the time of Isaiah. But the reality is, this is how um, the Lord can describe each of us by nature. Our sin has made a separation between us and God. Our sin has hidden his face from us. And if left in that situation, we would experience separation from God and his goodness forever. That's the reality that sin has created. And we see this separation between God and people described throughout Scripture. Just think of what we read in Leviticus 16. In that chapter, the Lord gave 
uh, directions for one of the most important days in Old Testament Israel, the Day of Atonement. And notice how that chapter begins, how Leviticus 16 begins. The Lord says, or we read, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. Now, with those words, the Lord is referring back to an event that happened back in Leviticus 10. The tabernacle had just been constructed. Aaron and his sons, Nadab and Abihu, had just been consecrated for service as priests. But then disaster struck. Nadab and Abihu each took their censers, put fire in them, laid incense on them, and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. The problem is, sinful people cannot approach God just any way that they like. God is holy. We are not. And so in response to their their actions, the Lord showed that the chasm between sinful man and holy God still remained, and that we can't just try bridge that gap by ourselves. Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed Nadab and Abihu, and they died before the Lord. In the rest of Leviticus 16, the Lord continued to show that that separation existed because of sin. No Israelite could just walk into the Holy of Holies on their own where God lived among Israel. Not even the regular priests could walk into the Holy of Holies. And the truth is, None of us can come into God's presence just as we are. We would be consumed also. In ancient Israel, only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies, but only on the Day of Atonement. And by this, God was showing to his people back then and to us today, my people, you were created to live in my presence But sin has placed you outside of it. Now there's a barrier between me and you. If left to yourself, there would be no way back in. You would be kept out of my presence forever, and you would be consumed because of your sin. That's also what we learned in Lord's Day 4 of our catechism. Lord's Day 4 describes this reality as follows. God's justice requires that sin committed against the most high majesty of God be punished with the most severe, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. That then brings us to Lord's Day 5, which asks the next logical question. Well, since, according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve that punishment, how can we escape the punishment? and be again received into God's favor. And you know what? That's probably the most important question there is. How can we escape God's forever punishment on sinners? How can that separation between us and God be removed? It's the most important question in all the world. The answer is as follows. God demands that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, we must make full payment either by ourselves or through another. 
God requires that sin be paid for. And again, that's something we see from Leviticus 16. The wages of sin is death, and God's justice requires that this payment be made when sin is committed. If it's not, then justice is not done, and so the separation between God and humans remains. And look at all the requirements on the Day of Atonement that we read about in Leviticus 16. The high priest had to bathe himself in water before putting on the priestly clothing. Then he had to sacrifice a bull for a sin offering, making atonement for his own sins. Then he had to offer another goat as a sin offering for the sins of all the people. And he had to take the blood of that goat and bring it before the Lord in the Holy of Holies. He then carefully sprinkled it on the mercy seat, which was on the ark uh, where the Lord dwelt uh, with Israel. All these regulations speak of justice, payment, and atonement for sin. Death needed to occur because sin had been committed. Blood had to be shed because justice needed to be satisfied. And this, this is what needs to happen if the gulf between us and God is to be removed. And we need to understand this, because if we don't, then we will not seek salvation in the perfect and only Savior, Jesus Christ. That brings us to our next point. So again, the separation between us and God is far too long, deep, and wide for us to come to God on our own. Anything but the perfect Savior will leave us outside of God's presence. Now, given what we read in Scripture, we might wonder, well, how is that ever going to happen? How is this going to work? Think again of what happened to Nadab and Abihu. They were consumed with fire because of God's holiness. You know, how is a relationship with God ever going to be possible given our sin and God's holiness and justice? Well, the truth is we can't just look for any old Savior. Nor can we resort to wishful thinking, acting like God is just going to forget about His justice and turn a blind eye to sin. Now, perhaps that sounds kind of harsh to our ears. And no, I think we are especially prone to that in our culture because this truth from Scripture is exclusive, right? There's only the one Savior. God's justice must be satisfied. And if there's one thing our culture preaches against, it's being exclusive. However, speaking this truth is not harsh or unloving. Rather, it's quite the opposite. It's actually loving to speak this clearly and without hesitation. That's because we don't want anyone to put their hope in someone or something that cannot save us from sin. You know, think of this in, in terms of everyday life. It's not unloving to put warning labels on poisonous products. It's not unloving to per permit only highly trained workers to fix high-voltage power lines. It's not unloving to insist that children aren't allowed to drive a car. 
It's because if we don't have those things, people are really going to hurt themselves. And it's the same thing here, but even greater, far greater. Only the perfect Savior will do. We must take care that we don't put false hope in things that cannot save. After all, this is about God's justice and human sin. Now, the next question and answers in the Catechism show us the Savior's requirements. The first question is this. Can we by ourselves make the payment? Make the payment for sin? The answer is obviously no. We only daily increase our debt. We sin every day. Remember, also, the penalty for sin is death. And if we ourselves make that payment, we will stay dead because our sins would keep us in death's uh, clutches. We could never escape it. So the next question is, can any mere creature pay for us? While our reading from Leviticus 16 might make us think so at first, after all, the high priest entered the Holy of Holies with the blood of a goat. However, the rest of Scripture makes clear that these sacrifices in themselves could not take away sin. They were just meant to point us ahead to someone to come. Besides that, after they were made, the Israelites still couldn't enter into the tabernacle with God. No, the barrier still remained. Instead, we need a mediator who is a true and righteous man and who is at the same time true God. Why does he need to be a true man? Well, he needs to be a true man because humans are the one who sinned, and so a human needs to pay. I think that's simple enough. We can't find salvation in an angel, in an animal, or any other creature. The next mark of the Savior deserves some more attention. Our Savior also needs to be a righteous man. He needs to have never indulged in the slightest hint of sin. He needs to have kept all the requirements of God's law all the time, every second of his life. And God shows this requirement through throughout Scripture. Think again of the Old Testament sacrifices. God's people, they couldn't just offer whatever they wanted. They had to offer an animal without any blemish. The Passover lamb in the book of Exodus had to be a lamb without blemish. The sin offerings described in Leviticus had to be an animal without blemish. God also chastised his people through the prophet Malachi for offering defiled animals. He says in Malachi 1, When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show any favor to you? God was teaching them the sacrifice needs to be perfect. And so the Savior needs to be righteous because the payment for sin also is death. You see, if someone tries to make that payment, while even having one ounce of sin in himself, death will likewise hold him in its grip forever. The wages of sin is death. And so the Savior needs to be perfectly righteous, not only so that he can pay for our sins by dying, but also so that he can escape the grave after he dies. 
Our sins will bring the Savior to his death, but his righteousness will bring him to a resurrection after he dies. And so our Savior needs to be perfect in every way. The next requirement for the perfect Savior is as follows. He must not only be true and righteous man, but he must also be true God. And he must be true God because the human Savior is going to bear God's eternal wrath against sin. And you know what? The Lord Jesus is not just a Savior of one person and one sin. He's a Savior of countless people and countless sins. Think of what David says in Psalm 40 about himself. He says, My sins are more than the hairs of my head. No, I know this is just a figure of speech that David uses, but let's work with that image for a moment. I did a quick internet search, and according to the internet, the average person has 100,000 hairs on their head. And that's just one person. That's King David, a man after God's own heart, said, my sins are more than the hairs of my head. And if David's sins are more than the hairs of his head, think about all the sins of every person who will be saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. And sorry to say, but you're not off the, hall, not off the hook if you're bald. We are all sinners. We have all sinned against the Lord. We all have this same sin that David does. And if we multiply that number, 100,000, by even 1,000 people, that equals 100 million sins that need to be paid for. That's just 1,000 people. Justice needs to be satisfied for 100 million sins. And think now of all the people who will be saved throughout history. Countless. And the Lord Jesus bore the brunt of God's wrath against all those sins. You know, we will never, never be able to fully understand the agony and the horror that Christ endured on the cross. No mere human could sustain that punishment. But Christ is more than just a true and righteous man. He is also true God. And that's what's allowed him to endure. That makes him the perfect Savior. As the Catechism says, but who is that perfect mediator and deliverer? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. That brings us to our last point. So Lord's Day 6 ends by asking, from where do you know all this? How do you know about the perfect Savior, Jesus Christ? The answer is, from the Holy Gospel. A gospel is a word we use often. What does it mean? Gospel simply means good news. So we know about the Savior, Jesus Christ, through the gospel, the good news of salvation. And as an aside, think of what we learned in Lord's Day 2. From where do you know your sins and misery? 
And the answer there was, from the law of God. But now the question is, from where do you know salvation and the perfect Savior? The answer is, from the Holy Gospel. God's law reveals the problem of human sin, but the law can't save us. The gospel, or good news of Christ, is what offers the solution to our sin. It's through this message of Christ that we are saved. And this good news of Christ is revealed not just in the gospel stories, but throughout the entire Bible. Lord say 6 describes it like this, God first revealed this gospel to Adam and Eve in paradise. Later, he had it proclaimed by the patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. And finally, he had it fulfilled through his only son. You see, all throughout history, there's only one Savior. There is only one way of salvation through Christ. That is the message that God was unfolding from the very beginning. Think about what God always told his people. Salvation is from the Lord, and from the Lord alone. Only God could save his people. As he declared in Isaiah 45, Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. The Lord is the Savior of His people. And so that's the same message we got when the Lord Jesus was born into the world. The angel told Joseph in Matthew 1, You shall call the child Jesus, meaning Yahweh saves, because He, this child, will save His people from their sins. And the clear implication is that Jesus is also Yahweh, the Lord, our Savior. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This gospel was foreshadowed also in the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Again, think of the Day of Atonement. Made it clear that we could not pay for our sins ourselves. Instead, we needed someone to pay the price for us and in our place. The high priest took the blood of the goats into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled it on the mercy seat for the sins of the people. There was also the second goat, most commonly referred to as the scapegoat. Aaron had to place both his hands on the head of that live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel, all their transgressions, all of their sins. And the next verse shows the symbolism of this action of placing his hands on the head of that goat and confessing over it. The Lord said, By this, Aaron shall put the sins of the people on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness. And the goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote place. This was the very thing our Lord Jesus Christ would do in His saving work. He would take our sins from us, remove them from us, and take them upon Himself. He would bear our sins and our transgressions on His own head. As Isaiah 53 
puts it in those well-known words, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord Jesus is like that scapegoat, taking our sins away from us. And so Jesus Christ paid the price for you who believe in him. The New Testament refers to Christ's sacrifice as a sacrifice of propitiation. Now, what's that? Well, a sacrifice of propitiation is a sacrifice that turns aside the wrath of God. Interestingly, the Greek word for propitiation is the same word used to describe the mercy seat on the Old Testament Ark of the Covenant. Jesus Christ is like that mercy seat, the place of propitiation, where atonement was made, on which the high priest sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice, thereby paying for the sins of the people. Christ is a person on whom God's wrath was satisfied and turned aside from us. And the good news is that by Christ's sacrifice, the chasm between God and us has been removed forever. Fellowship with God is restored through Christ. Free access to God has been opened. This is how 1 Peter 3 puts it. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, right? That he might overcome that separation that existed because of our sins. Before he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ suffered for our sins, the righteous for us, the unrighteous, to bring us to God. And that is what he has done. Our Lord Jesus has brought us into the heavenly holy of holies of God's presence by means of His blood and righteousness. So in Christ, you have access to God. In Christ, your sins have been paid for. And in Christ, fellowship with God has been secured. Amen.